Welcome everybody to the UDR podcast. I'm Tom Forsyth here with Bill Ward. We're going to discuss everything recovery, different perspectives and different experiences in recovery with people we know and people around the world. Hey everybody, so if you resonate with the episode today, please uh, follow us. And if you know of somebody who might benefit from this episode, please share it. Thanks guys. Okay, today we welcome Dora G with Soberoso.com. We're super excited to have Dora here today, um, sharing her experience, strength, and hope with us. Um, Dora, why don't you kick us off and tell us a little bit what you got going on today, and uh, just let the listeners know, um, you know, what uh, recovery can bring when you put your mind to it. All right. Hi, beautiful Pete. It's Dora from the Soberoso podcast, and I'm really happy to be here with Billy and Tommy today. Uh, I'll just uh, let you know a little bit what's happening on the the recovery and the the recovery projects on my part, and then we'll get back into my story, I guess. But um, I uh, started up a recovery podcast in the pandemic here, and had the pleasure of interviewing both of these guys here on the show, which is how our how our paths intertwined at first um so yeah i'm doing a similar thing that tommy and billy are doing i uh, have a podcast that comes out every tuesday morning it's called soberoso and i interview uh, guests and listeners from around the world that join us in sharing our passion for recovery and it is it's a real blessing you know when i pray at night i thank god every night for this project because uh, in this time of the pandemic I'm a, a single woman. I've been in isolation. I'm home 85% of the time. And this project of this podcast has me constantly working in recovery. So I'm, I'm either listening and helping somebody share their story, or I'm healing my own journey by sharing my own story, or I'm in the editing process of. And, um, you know, it's, it's like our literature tells us, one alcoholic or addict helping another. And I feel the same way uh, with this podcast. So really happy to be here. And thanks for having me, guys. And Dora, before we kind of veer off of that topic, um, when you say recovery, like Tommy and I focus mostly on, on the substance, uh, spiritual malady too, though. But you're, you're bringing people in with all types of uh, issues that are trying to share and inspire people. It's not just drugs and alcohol, is that correct? That's correct, Bill. Um, at Soberoso, we celebrate all recovery and all people. Um, now, what that means is a, a lot of our interviews that we do are with people that are recovering from addiction or alcoholism, but we also have some people um, that have gone into gambling addiction, porn addiction, and um, obsessive eating, you know, who have lost 200, 300 pounds. We also had a guy on there who deals with um, grief. He has a podcast of his own, and he is not an addict or alcoholic, but he has a podcast that deals strictly with the process of grieving lost ones. So yeah, we, we have an array of, of people, but the primary um, guests on there are addicts and alcoholics. And uh, some of them are 12-step based and some of them aren't. So big variety. Okay, well, let's get into like the, well, let's get into a little bit of your experience in your addiction, you know, leading up to how you, you came to recover from, from your addiction. All right. Well, I don't know how much time I got on the show, so <laughs> I'll give you a little peek. Um, I drank and drugged for 30 years. Uh, the first drink that I remember picking up, uh, I was 12 years old. Um, my immediate family, none of them are alcoholics or addicts in the sense that they don't use a substance. However, in working the 12 steps uh, in my own recovery and unraveling and looking at these patterns, I realized for the first time in my life that my father's mom was an alcoholic. Um, she lived a thousand miles away from us. So I heard my dad refer to her 
you know, as uh, his alcoholic mother and that I, I should be careful because this might skip a generation and hit me, right? Um, so I'm just now kind of starting to scratch the surface that he, I believe my dad had some alcoholism without picking up the bottle. You know, he, he really went into the side of um, a lot of control. He was a very strict, very religious father. And I think now with a little perspective myself, I can see that he probably did that because of the way he grew up and, you know, his mother being an alcoholic and he was trying to do the exact opposite and have control in the family setting. So, um, yeah, I drank and drugged for 30 years. Uh, I um, had my first drink at the age of 12, uh, living in a religious family. When I had that drink, I thought I had arrived. I was like, I am an adult now. It was actually in Mexico where I, lo and behold, started my recovery journey in the same city. That was my first drink. And um, come full circle here. <laughs> and uh, we were on vacation and my parents didn't really drink at home, but uh, we were on holiday and it was my mom, my dad, and my uncle and aunt and us cousins. And uh, the waiter brought a drink on the house after eating dinner and it was uh, Kahlua and cream. So here's a little girl coming from Northern BC in the snow and the pine trees to the tropics, the ocean breeze, palm trees, coconuts, like sunsets, like a whole different world. And this beautiful glass with the Kahlua and cream and the ice cubes in it. And, and uh, that was the highlight of my, my vacation. It was also the first time that I saw my father really loosened up because of the alcohol. You know, he was hanging on to my uncle and he was telling everybody, I love you. I love you. You know, he was super chilled out and relaxed. And uh, that wasn't my dad. You know, my dad was very strict. So for me, it was like, you know, this beautiful drink, this vacation setting. And my dad was super funny and loving. And it was, I had arrived. Like, it was like, do more of this. So uh, yeah, that was the first drink at 12 and things downhill from that. Started running uh, running away. I started running away for days on. I went from a Christian school into a high school and I grew up in Fort Nelson, BC and it's a very small town. There's only one high school. And uh, I kind of went into that setting um, like you would, I imagine, like you would going into jail. It was like I either got a bully or bully or get bullied. And uh, within the first week, I was suspended for drinking on the property. Um, and in the second week, I had a huge fight with two big Native American girls that were the bullies. And I took on one of them and held my ground. <laughs> And uh, yeah, it was like a do or die situation. I felt like, you know, I, I, I wanted the uh, acceptance, I guess, going from a Christian school into that public school from the peers and my kids. And that really manifested in the form of, I went everything against um, authority, teachers, everything, you know, I, I just became a badass. And within um, a couple months, I was moved from my grade A's to the back portable for alternate education kids, you know, the bad kids in the back. And um, things spiraled out of, out of control there. Uh, so yeah, like I said, that's how it started. I ended up uh, at 15, stealing my mom and dad's car when they were on vacation, rolling it, totaling it. And- um, Like to, uh, <clears throat> like we're at, we're, you're about 15 now. For our listeners and mm -hmm. for us, I know a little bit of your back history, not a lot, but mm -hmm. paint a little bit of a picture of like how you were growing up and like the dynamic with your family. And because a lot of the behaviors that you're exhibiting now as a young teenager in the story, they, they probably came and were built on something earlier, right? Would you be able to maybe give us a little bit of a description of how, how the structure was set up and and maybe what you were longing for as a need for, as a kid or, or what you were missing or what you were getting too much of or anything like that? Sure. 
Well, Bill, it's hard for me to have a short conversation about this. So um, I think I, I don't think, you know, growing up, I really thought that I had somewhat of a normal upbringing. Um, and I always thought that I was, you know, the bad apple in the family. But through doing the work, I've realized that I didn't have a normal upbringing. I uh, was the first grandchild, the first child, the first cousin, the first of everything as far as the, um, the family dynamics went on both sides. So that meant that my parents had no experience being parents. And not only was I the first child, grandchild, cousin, all that good stuff, I was also the first baby born into a religious cult that was uh, run by a man named Sam Fife, who started up many religious cults in the 70s and 80s. And uh, so I was born into a, um, a literal survival mode. My parents had uh, started this cult up at, at Pink Mountain. It's called uh, Headwaters Ranch, known as The Move by the Sam Fife. And uh, they were surviving in the wilderness. Um, they were basically starving. Some of the guys that were there trying to farm the land, you know, they were preaching the end times and that uh, the end of the world was going to come and that they had to live off the land. So they were uh, starving in the cold. They couldn't grow uh, food because there was frost on the ground every morning. And some of these um, guys, my mom told me, started working for a nearby farm and they got paid in potatoes so that they had some food. And um, my father ended up uh, being a trapper and trapped for, um, you know, all sorts of, of pelts that he traded to the Hudson Bay Company for traded their furs for some extra financing. So right there, that's not really a normal upbringing. <laughs> but in my head, you know, I just thought I was the odd one out. So anyways, uh, we escaped from there. Oh, my first meat was lynx. The first taste of meat I had as a child was a lynx that they had run over. Um, so from there, my parents uh, uh, left that place uh, when my brother was born. So I was about three and they moved to Fort Nelson, which was still a place in the middle of buttfuck nowhere. You know, it was so small. It was called a village. It wasn't even big enough to be a town when I moved there and another place in the middle of nowhere. Uh, but my dad got a good job there. And um, this survival mode continued with my parents. They were still religious they still believed in god they still started going to a uh, church there uh, but my parents you know looking back the way that my parents raised us it was still in survival mode like we had a nice house but we're the only people i know of my friends that had a wood burning stove to heat the house so that meant a lot of chores chopping wood in spring break hauling wood stacking wood always wood wood going my mom grew a, a garden she grew as much as she could I knew how to like fish and gut my own fish by the time I was seven. I knew how to shoot a rifle. I knew how to, <laughs> I knew how to survive uh, the wilderness. Um, but I really started seeing and resenting the fact that I couldn't just be a kid from the age of five. I saw that what I was going on in my family, like, I had to earn my keep, basically, you know, we, we all had to contribute to the family. So, um, you know, I, I, I started resenting other kids. I wanted what they had in their snacks. I wanted more playtime. I wanted, I didn't want to haul wood. I wanted, you know, I just wanted to do what the rest of the kids were doing. And um, were you getting, can, were you getting love and attention or? Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I would say, you know, as an early child growing up, you know, I had the fear of my father in the sense that he, uh, you know, he wasn't physically abusive, but he was definitely a disciplinary, you know. I mean, we didn't, we didn't step out of line, you know, if we were bad when we were little, we got a strap or whatever when my father got home and he had the one, two, three count on where we were at the table if he counted I three and we weren't there, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, I had the love as a little child, but because of the strict rules I grew up with, which was like, you know, no cutting my hair, no wearing makeup, no talking to boys, not going to get married till I'm 21 or go on a date, 
I guess as I started to go into adolescence and enter in, into the ages of a teenager, I really noticed that there was a considerable lack of communication within my family. So because I had all these rules, there were so many changes that were going on in me that I couldn't even talk to my own mom about because I was just not allowed to do so many things. And uh, I felt like I really had to figure out a lot of things for myself or talk to, you know, my friend's mom who talked about things that I couldn't talk to about my mom with. So I think there was a real breakdown of communication due to these strict, strict rules I had to live within. And I fucking rebelled, you know, I, I started living on my own by the age of 15. Like I was done. I was kind of thinking like, um, when you go back and Bill was talking about, you know, did you kind of get the love that you were looking for? And when I think about when I took a look at, you know, I thought my family was very normal in a sense. We didn't communicate. There was very little emotion involved, but I, I thought we were normal. We lived in a house and there, we lived in a community. And so that's just what I thought was normal. Um, Bill took me through the process, a uh, uh, step five process, and, and we were looking at it. And it was really important for me to see that you know, instead of blaming my mom for the way she was, but to look at how she was raised. And she was raised by my grandfather, who was raised in an all boys boarding school. He knew nothing about raising a woman or a, mm -hmm. a young girl. And um, so that really affected her in the way she raised me. Like she was very, um, she didn't raise me like a woman. She raised me like a man. And, and my dad was kind of the, uh, uh, kind of like the turtle in the, <laughs> like he would kind of just hide from everything. She was very aggressive and, and he was just, he, he didn't say much. Right. Mm -hmm. So when I think about like, did I experience, you know, the love and, you know, when I look at the way I am with my kids, where I really try and express love. And I'm, I told my son, you know, I love you, buddy. And he said, dad, you don't need to tell me that I know how much you love me <laughs> because I'm, I'm, I'm showing with my actions. Right. And so when I think about the way I was raised, it was very like not loving at all. And um, so, yeah, I, I searched out in, in friendship for that kind of that, that love and the companionship that I was looking for. And, and I always searched it in, in older guys. So I always hung out with older crowds. Right. And, mm -hmm. because my, you know, my dad didn't really raise me much. So I was kind of looking for a father figure and there's all these components when you actually take a really good look at it and you, you start to see why the way you are, the way you are, you know, mm -hmm. and I think you started to experience that too, right? Because that, that controlling kind of uh, total restriction where you can't even be who you are. And there's this conflict within you trying to figure out like you want to be you, but you can't because your parents don't let you. So you try and find ways where you can just be yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very much so. Um, yeah, you know, like when I reached a certain point, you know, I, I lived on my own from the age of 15. Teenage mother, I had two daughters before I could even get in the bar. And, you know, through my 30 years of drinking and drugging, I had many a failed relationship you know, with men, um, always thinking that each one of those guys was going to be my forever, you know, like we're in this together forever. And uh, I had a lot of failed relationships um, and a lot of bad decision making as a result of drinking and drugging. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I reached a point, you know, like once I was on my own, like something kind of switched because, you know, I wasn't blaming my parents. Like when I was on my own, my father eventually got a transfer out of that out of that town, like a thousand miles away. So now my whole family's gone and I'm in this town and I'm 15. And in my opinion, I, I've got what I want at that time. I'm on my own. I've got no rules to live under. I'm shacked up with a guy who's 19 and and nobody's telling me, you know, like, like the restrictions that my family had on me. So a lot of self-parenting came into play. Um, so, yeah, but I guess after that, you know, something switched in me where I really took like everything that happened to me in my life was my own fault, was my own karma, was my own doing, you know, I, I made my bed and my choices and now I got to live in it, whether it was, you know, abusive relationships or whatever bad or chaotic things happened to me, it was because of 
the choice I made to leave my family. But it's only now, you know, through working the steps in the recovery that the first time in my life, you know, I'm not going back there and looking at with blame. I'm looking with a different perspective. Like I mentioned, like now I can look back and say, you know, I never thought about how my father grew up with an alcoholic mother that was sending, you know, him at eight years old to the store to go get him a bottle of booze every day. Like I never thought about that, you know? So I have a different perspective. Um, not that I, not that I've been blaming my parents for all these years, but I just have a bigger perspective in, in the, in the, in the way that now I can look back and go like, wow, you know, like, that's probably why my dad was so strict was because of his mom and my grandma, a, a better understanding, you know? Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, I'm not, go I'm not trying to go back there with, with blame. I'm going back with a perspective I never had until I came into recovery. Cool. And I love my parents dearly. You know, we all have a fantastic relationship with all my family members. Nowadays, everything's great, but it's just, you know, now I'm finally seeing through working these steps and working with my sponsor just this December came to a, you know, a heartfelt knowing head and heart that, you know, I wasn't a bad little girl that was the black sheep in the family. I grew up in a really abnormal situation. And I always thought, you know, it was me. I didn't belong in that family or something was different with me. When really, I was just, like you said, Tommy, I, I was just trying to be myself in a place that I couldn't, I couldn't be me. So Dora, I'm taking you back to that moment in time where you were, you, you were thinking that this is all the karma that was coming back on you because of the decisions you made. And um, did you beat yourself up and like shame yourself in your own mind at that point? And I know you grew up in a religious background, heavy religious background. So you had a conception of God or creator of whatever it was. Did you think that you were bad based on the religious leanings that you had been brought up with? And that's kind of what manifested that thought. And second thing would be, did you blame God for anything? Um, yeah, great questions there, Bill. I think, um, I believe looking back, you know, I, I've carried a lot of shame and a lot of guilt, which is, is, you know, after removing the obsession to drink and drugs, the, the underlying hardest thing I'm dealing with is learning to forgive and love myself because I've carried a lot of shame for many years. And I think that, yes, I do believe that I was having these feelings that I was inadequate, that I didn't belong in my own family because because of the religious teachings that I grew up with, you know, the man was always the head of the household, you know, the woman obeyed the man. I never heard my parents argue or raise their voices at each other in my entire life. But my mother also, when she was upset, you couldn't see it vocally, but I could feel the energy, you know, she'd get quiet, she'd go into her room for a bit. So now that I can look back, I can see that she was very submissive. You know, she's an angel. She's a beautiful woman, but she's that ideal religious setting that I grew up with reading the Bible, you know, that the woman, the man's the head of the household and, you know, there's a hierarchy and the woman is below him and you don't question your elders and you, you know, you don't, you don't question. So I believe I, along with not having communication, I developed that, that, um, those traits to bury things, you know, I could, I couldn't communicate with my parents. And I also had to bury those feelings because I didn't have the place to question them. I wasn't allowed to question them. So I think uh, me feeling the guilt and the shame is because, yeah, you know, now I'm living on alone, I'm on my own. And I'm thinking, all of this happened because I chose to leave my family, you know, my my parents finally transferred. My dad had been trying every year for, you know, 12 years to get a transfer out of that little village in the middle of nowhere. And when they finally did to big city life, which meant options, you know, <laughs> a ton of more options because there was no options in that little village. 
I was already out of the home and, and chose of my own free will to stay with this guy that I was shacked up with. So everything that did happen to me after that, you know, yeah, I, I blamed myself. I blamed myself for everything, you know? I wanted to grow up, I wanted to be an adult, and this is happening because of my decision. This is happening because it's all my fault, you know? And, and I, I went through a, my first bout of uh, depression after I had my youngest daughter. Uh, I was 17 when I had her, and uh, I, I experienced postpartum depression. And again, I'm in this little village. There's two doctors in the whole town. This is uh, back in 1991 is when my daughter was born. And, um, you know, there wasn't internet. We had encyclopedias. <laughs> like, there was no internet to know what depression was. So, you know, I didn't talk about those things. And I was just crying all the time uncontrollably. And, you know, these feelings of um, I'm not good enough. Everybody's better off without me. And, uh, you know, every everywhere I go, I just you know, bring everybody else down. The whole world's better off without me. And so I, I did finally see uh, the doctor that, you know, helped me uh, deliver my daughter and uh, told him, you know, like, I can't stop crying on this and that. And uh, he told me that was, that was pretty normal, pregnant women, you know, I'm a teenager. I don't know shit. And uh, he told me about postpartum depression and that was a, a normal thing. So I kind of had a sense of relief when I heard that because, you know, I'm thinking I'm struggling in my own head. It's me. And he prescribed me, uh, I believe it was Prozac at the time. And uh, I was, you know, kind of felt a sense of relief that, okay, there's an answer to this. And uh, my old man <laughs> worked out in the bush. So he was away when that happened. And when he um, came back to town, you know, I, I told him, about going to see the doctor and, and uh, he just wouldn't have any part of it. There was no way his old lady was going to be depressed or have to take medication to be quote unquote normal. And um, that was the end of being medicated by a doctor's prescription. So um, yeah, then I started drinking and drugging for self-medicating, you know, not just for fun, but to numb everything out because for some reason street drugs were okay, but not doctor prescribed at that time. Mm -hmm. And did I start blaming God? Sorry, I forgot about that question. Um, I didn't blame God. Again, Bill, I didn't blame God. I took all of everything that happened to me as <clears throat> my own fault. But what happened is that I never prayed to God. I lost all my, any relationship that I had with a God. I just thought I can do this on my own. The Christian school that I grew up in, I, I remember, you know, like I had to memorize the Bible front to back. I'd been in a Christian school for, I think, five years before I went into high school. And, you know, it was all church. It was all the Bible. And, um, and uh, I totally lost my train of thought. <laughs> oh, I remember, I remember, um, I remember reading, like, there's some part in the Bible where it says, you know, that God knows uh, every hair on your head. Like there's some, something in the Bible, but you know, God knows everything. You know, he's got a plan for everybody and he knows every single hair on your head. And I remember thinking as a kid, like, not only am I going up in religion, but even like, how is it possible that God knows everything about me before I do? Like, I feel like I have no free will at all. I'm a fucking robot here. If somebody knows everything, you know? And I remember being like a young kid, like nine, 10 years old, I'm on my way home from school, walking down the road and just doing a side skip and going, did he know I was going to do that? You know, like, <laughs> like trying to test it, you know, and I had this like anger in me, like, how can he know everything? You know, that means like I'm a fucking robot, like I have nothing of my own. So I kind of resented that, you know, I'm living under the control of my parents. And now this God that knows everything before I do, every single hair on my head, every move I make. Um, so, yeah, when I left my parents, you know, I just turned my back on God. I didn't hate him. I didn't blame him. I just turned my back on him. And later that came around in my in my recovery. But uh, yeah. yeah, I wasn't blaming him. I just I just turned my back. I think the more that I get into this recovery and work with other 
addicts and alcoholics and just my experience as you were talking it's just like the amount of blame and shame that we experience in recovery i think it it, it plays such a huge part in why it's it's hard to actually recover um the energy of the blame and shame is uh it's so self-defeating and you know i i suppose it's hard not to because the way we the way we are when we're in addiction i mean um, it's always like how could i do that how could i be this way why did i do that and it's not like that you you know you step into recovery and all that just goes away because you're recovered all of a sudden because like the the subconscious mind it, you know thoughts just start happening and when you've burnt your life to the to the ground numerous times throughout your life even though you know you get these opportunities that might be potentially good and then you just burn it down because you can't handle life because you're drunk and high all the time. Um, so yeah, this is a major part that, you know, all addicts and, and alcoholics have to deal with and to do it alone um, without understanding people in my life and other, you know, the program works so well because we have a, such, a, such an awesome network of understanding people. And, um, you know, so can you tell us a little bit of like, cause the blame and shame, it happens and it gets less and less as you go, as long as you're aware of it and you have people to talk to, do you have a little bit of experience of, you know, in your recovery, how those thoughts crept in and what you had to do to deal with it? Yeah. In my recovery. <clears throat> sure. Um, well, I spoke with Bill a couple months ago about this. Well, I don't know, a couple months ago, but um, I had two really huge spiritual experiences or transformations in December that happened for me. In December, I celebrated two years of being clean and sober. Right <clears throat> and, um, you know, throughout this pandemic, the the obsession of drink and drug, honestly, I think it was gone within three months, which is absolutely insane for somebody that drank for 30 years. For the obsession to drink and drug to be gone in three months is a short time. But getting that obsession gone, you know, now we're dealing with the underlying causes and conditions. And um, so I've had several emotional breakdowns, you know, emotional sobriety tests and um just flat out mental breakdowns in, in my recovery. And uh, a lot of that stems from the shame and blame. You know, my, my, my parents, my kids, my family, all the most important people in my life love me to pieces. They've been praying for me for years. None of them hold any anger or resentments towards me. But letting go of that shame and guilt myself has been the biggest challenge in my recovery because you know they've long forgotten it and I'm still going in this circle in my head going you know I could have done better I shouldn't have done that when I was 15 you know I'm, I'm not talking about recent drinking and drugging history I'm talking about the shit I did when I was five or 15 which is 30 years ago <laughs> so um yeah I uh, you know along with working the, the program, working the steps. I have an incredible sponsor who, you know, I've shared more with anybody than I have in my entire life, you know, about all these little pieces and these patterns and, and things that I never ever put any thought to in my addiction or my alcoholism. You know, I was just going from chaos to chaos, just, you know, fucking running from fires and just keep on going and don't look back. So, uh, you know, for the first time, the steps are bringing me back through these patterns, back through these moments in my life that I never dealt with. And um, so it, I had a couple breakdowns, mental breakdowns in, in the pandemic alone. And, and when that happens to me, I really have to, I have to turn off every distraction. I have to get back to basics. Like I'm talking, I turn off the phone, I turn off the computer, everything has to come to uh, a halt. And, you know, I start journaling more, I get back into my book more, I get back into meetings more. But I also know in those moments that it's a time of growth. So I might be hurting and I might be 
feeling like I've been fucking praying for this for seven days. You know, when is it going to leave? When is it going to let up? And those moments seem like a lifetime, you know, when, I, when I'm in that. But at the same time, I know it's an opportunity of growth. You know, I lean more into God. I lean more into to letting go and getting back to admitting that I'm powerless, you know, over anything. So um, <clears throat> along with working the steps, prayer, meditation, I also, to do this rewiring of the brain, I literally <laughs> um, listen to sometimes like six hours a day of self-affirmations and of um, guided meditations, you know, the first thing I do before I'm fully awake, I'm, I'm putting on an hour of these pre-recorded self-affirmations of going back into my head to get rid of these negative thoughts and saying, you know, I, I am a good person. I am lovable. I am this because in my head, that is not my natural way of thinking. My natural way of thinking, you know, especially if things aren't right, somebody else isn't, you know, picking on me, my thought cycle saying, you know, you're not good enough. You, you, you should be better. You could be doing better. You know, that's my natural thoughts for a lifetime. So I'm trying to replace those with with good ones and self affirmations. And you know, some of these affirmations I, I've come up on my own. So one of the um, <clears throat> transformations I had in December, which was the day of my sobriety date, I uh, went for a little walk with my dog in a in a park here, and uh, I was just doing the loop with my dog. And you know, um, working in recovery, like there's one thing that my sponsor can point out to me. It's another thing that I can read something 20 different times, but to actually make that connection and, and understand it and feel it and get it, it has to be, you know, in God's timing or, or in the right timing. Like it, it doesn't mean just because I read it that, okay, I believe that now I'm never going to have a negative thought because I just read this, I'm lovable and I'm never going to go back to negative thoughts. So I'm walking around the park with my dog on, on, on my two-year day, you know, and I'm just thankful to be outside and in the outdoors. And I just have this, this thought come to me, you know, like, I am a woman in recovery. I am sober. I've got two years of recovery. I'm not trying to be this woman. You know, I'm not in that fake it till you make it state. You know, I am giving back, I'm sharing a message, I'm sharing a solution. And it just this different sense of knowing, you know, like I said, like, I'm not faking it, like, I am this woman, you know, that I'm portraying. And it, um, it was just incredible, you know, those two words in front of something positive, I am can be so, so beneficial and uh, yeah it was just a different connection not just something I read but a, and a, a deep understanding that's awesome Dora <clears throat> um it brought me I'm gonna go back to something you said and and Tommy and I talk about this all the time and when you're in recovery and what I've noticed about what you're saying is as you've stayed sober you're able to see the positive patterns of the growth which you can only start seeing if you stay sober and and being aware of going through these dark spots where you're like okay i can get through this um with the help of my god and so you lean into god harder like you said but the thing that i've noticed as i've worked with a lot of people been around the program is when people get into that dark state with us with our illness it's that turbocharger it's like it's always been this way and it's always going to be this way and it starts feeling really hopeless right and then so i still get into those states but the patterns of being sober and going through these things i'm able to say it's not always been this way and it's not always going to be this way and i like you know that i'm in a period of growth i just don't know what it looks like and as a human being on this planet i want to control everything and the thing that I want to control the most is feeling good, which is, which is why we end up using drugs and alcohol because it, we like the effect produced, but it ends up cutting us to ribbons later. And, and then we get to a place where we need something different. Um, and also on that note, as this is another thing I've noticed, and it talks about it in the literature, um, more is going to be constantly revealed. Like this is a journey of healing. 
right? And to use the positive affirmations, I've done that too. It's really been helpful. I'm at stage, at a stage in my recovery coming up on six years. And now I'm digging into the deeper layers of the, I'm going to say the shadow of, mm -hmm. of why, why? And, and I can only use the positive affirmations to a point if I don't look at the root of some of these things, then I'm only resisting what it actually is. And most humans don't want to look into the shadow because our conception is that it's all dark and it's, it's negative. But what I've learned about this work in the shadow going into the deep parts of me and asking myself why, there's a lot of really positive attributes about myself that I've stuffed down so I could use these negative coping mechanisms and as I bring the candle of light down into the dark, it actually starts shining in many areas of my life. And some of the areas it shines is the things that were actually good in me that I suppressed. And now I can bring those out too. And accepting the negative things about myself is key. I couldn't, I couldn't work on recovery until I accepted I was an addict. And I can't grow from that. And I can't grow out of the darkness until I accept some of those things that are seemingly negative about me. And the key part about it is, is they are parts of me. So I got to be able to accept whatever it is. And some of the thoughts that we have as humans, they get so shamed that you shouldn't even think like that. As I've grown in recovery, I have to understand that I can think like that. And it's okay to think like that. I just have to accept it and, and bring it to the light. And be okay with it because that's where that self-shaming comes in. And that's where that natural inclination to shame myself saying it's bad, it's bad, it's bad. But in God's world, I don't know if, if what's good or bad. God wants me to bring the light to the dark. That's what I know what he wants. And, and light will shine brighter than anything. And I'll finish with this. When you bring a candle into the darkness... It, it exudes so much light, it lights up a whole bunch of dark. But if you bring dark into the light, you can't notice the dark. So the light is the key, right? And, and, I, and this only happens with time. Six years in, I'm digging down into this shit. Maybe in 10 years, I'll be digging into some other shit. But the thing with me is it's not work. It's enjoyable work because I know that it, it takes me somewhere better and I don't know where that somewhere is. It's just a journey of healing. And, and to me, that's what this is. So, you know, kudos to you to have these revelations at two years in and empower yourself with, yeah, you are this person. You are that woman in recovery. You're not the actor trying to be that. You actually are that, right? Because our brains say, let's, let's try to be this thing. And to have the revelation where you are that, fucking beautiful, man. It's beautiful. So, yeah guns anything sorry i should have entered that with a question or something but i was too excited <laughs> it's all good and, and that's just it that's um i think we've been suppressing ourselves with drugs and alcohol for our entire life we come into recovery and we're supposed to know what to do but we have no idea how to process emotions we have no idea to do what to do with them when we feel them or how to label them and we try and figure out what they are and what we end up doing is actually creating more resistance towards ourselves and this is why we need a higher power because left to my own devices there's something about prayer and meditation where it lets parts of ourselves start to move start to become you know not so trapped within ourselves and once, once we start accepting you know these parts of ourselves like like bill said like you know we're so used to labeling ourselves or bad or good and there's no gray area like we're, we're supposed to be human beings right and uh we have to learn to accept and experience all these things that we've stuffed down all the years let them come to light and and try not to judge ourselves like we've been doing our entire life right and then you once i start ju stop judging myself and accepting you know the parts of myself that I've been just stuffing away for the years, then I start to accept pe other people as well, right? Because in a sense, we're all, we're, we're sick. We have a, a disease of alcoholism or addiction. And 
I am. I have to accept the fact that I am capable under certain certain circumstances that I'm capable of doing anything that somebody else is doing. And once I start to see someone as a human being with a spirit, you know, their entire experience has brought them to where they are today. And I don't know what they've been through. I don't know what they've been watching, what they've been reading, how they were raised, any of that. So if I start, stop, you know, judging everybody else and I start, stop judging myself, I have a lot less to think about. It, it, it's a freeing experience, but I also in that area, I need, I need God's help. Because when these things crop up, like, you know, the judgment and the assumptions that I know something, if I give that to God and I accept like, yes, I'm capable of this, it's okay. You know, I'm not going to beat myself up for being judgmental, but I need to pray about this and pray for that person. All this energy within me starts to move around, you know, and it's not trapped. And I don't feel like a, a stuck little pig anymore, you know? <laughs> so I don't know, like uh, what, what you've been talking about, Dora, um, understanding that, you know, we don't have to kill ourselves when we don't have good days. When we start having emotions that it's just really energy moving around within us. Um, yes, we don't know what to do with it, but we have to go through it. Because the more we pretend that it's not there, you know, the more we're going to suffer. And the more we're not going to grow because we need that growth. We need that movement within us to, to really start to become, you know, what we're intended to be. And a lot of us, that changes on a daily basis. But when you're, when you're in touch with a higher power and you, you don't need to know the future all the time, you don't have to figure everything out, just knowing that you know, if you're on the right path, that everything's going to be okay. So obviously you're, you've gotten to that point where, you know, you didn't take a bad day and, and beat yourself up, but you actually knew to shut off your phone, to stop distracting yourself. Cause that, I think that's a, when you said that, I just like, I felt such a relief that, that you actually said that because I think like spiritual growth will take so much longer. And I've had to do the, the electronic detox before because I can distract myself from all this stuff because I want to go to what's familiar, what I know, and I don't want to look at certain things. So it's easy to, to, you know, just aimlessly stare at social media. So I don't have to look at myself, but for you to say that where you just had to cut off all, you know, distractions and actually focus on yourself. I think that's in a really important message for people because it's okay to do that. And, um, you know, if you really want to grow and get through that stuff and not feel it, the best way to do that is to go grow through it and, you know, get in contact with people in recovery and talk about this stuff. And, you know, instead of just, you know, having that distraction. So I don't know, what else can you tell us about, um, you know, your recovery journey and kind of the things that maybe you think would be useful to people listening here today, especially women. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, Especially women. What can I tell women? Well, let me take you a little bit back to uh, what was going on in my life before I found recovery. I, I mentioned earlier that um, you know I start. I, I had a thirty-year thirty-year run of drinking and drugging. Uh, but what happened to me when I walked into recovery in August 2018 for the first time ever was that I was in a very toxic relationship with a, a man who. Um, well, I, I partied a lot, but together we did a lot of drugs and a lot of drinking. And uh, he also introduced another drug that uh, wasn't my favorite kind of drug, but it was really dark. So our um, our partying went from me, you know, being the social butterfly to dancing and talking with friends to, you know, the two of us locked into a house for three or four days on end. And, and that happened on a weekly basis. And, uh, you know, I was with this guy for three and a half years and I'd leave him and I'd go back to him. I'd leave him and I'd go back to him and I'd go back to him. Uh, most of the times I'd go back to him because when I left him, he either broke my phone or broke my laptop and a few days would go by and he'd call me back and say, you know, I owe you a phone or I owe you a laptop. So I'd go back to him to get the phone that he broke or the laptop that he broke. And another cycle of insanity would ensue where the, you know, the drugs would come back into play and I'd be another five months stint with the guy. So uh, before I found recovery, I, I have, was having the, the last fight with this guy. Um, 
and uh, it, we'd been partying for about two days uh, and I asked him about a relationship, you know, how can we, how can we get our relationship better if we try harder, we could be so good together. And he really didn't want anything to do with this relationship. You know, our relationship was of, of the least concern in his opinion. So I walked out at two in the morning uh, with my little dog and carry on suitcase. And I got a hotel at like two 30 in the morning, two and a half days of partying. I walked into this hotel room and I fell on my knees at the edge of the bed. And I cried out to God, this God that I turned my back on for many, many years. And uh, I just cried and said, God, give me the strength, give me the courage to stay away from this relationship that's killing me. Like, help me stay away from this man. I was fucking dying in this relationship. It was killing me. I, I lost my friends. I lost my family. I felt trapped. I, I was so hopeless. Like, I couldn't even stand up for myself. You know, I couldn't even fucking walk away. Anyways, the next morning, um, <clears throat> I slept about four hours and I got into a taxi and um, I grabbed a beer on the way and I decided I was going to go get a hotel closer to town. And uh, on that taxi ride, drinking that beer, for the first time in my life, I had this thought, maybe if I stop drinking and drugging, I'll find the strength that I need to stay away from this relationship. And looking back, that was the first, you know, God shot into my life because when things, when shit hit the fan, I drank and drugged. I didn't stop drinking and drugging to get through something like that. Like I'm back at starting my life over from scratch, from ground zero. And uh, I have this thought, maybe if I stop drinking and drugging, I'll find strength to stay away from this relationship. And that ended up being the last drink I've ever had was in that taxi ride. I ended up uh, phoning a, a couple girls when I got to this room that I knew had been in um, a 12-step recovery program prior. And they got me hooked up to my first meeting. And I went into a meeting and uh, that was my, my last drink. Um, so women, if there's women that are listening to this and you might be suffering or in, in a toxic relationship or an abusive relationship, if it's fueled with uh, drugs and alcohol and, and that could be a source of your problem. Um, for me and my personal experience, putting that drinking and drugging away was exactly what I needed to do because that was my last beer and I never ever went back to that guy. And it did exactly what that thought told me. Maybe if I stop drinking and drugging, I'll have the strength I need to stay away from this relationship that's killing me. And it did just that. So you're worth it. Put that drinking and drugging down and find the strength and courage you need to, to, to find love, to be loved, and to be the person you're meant to be. That's amazing. Um... And that's, you know, that can go for the men too, right? Like uh, there's a lot of men trapped in their own relationships and the codependency overlap that we have as addicts, alcoholic. Um, it's, it's the same, even if you're not an alcoholic and addict, but we just make more of a mess of it. And we get so much more attached that it just becomes so much more difficult to leave, especially while you're in the act of addiction. And what I've noticed about recovery is most men and women when they come into recovery they they may stop drinking for a while but then they usually get in a relationship fairly soon into their recovery and it's the number one thing that takes people back out like it's not by mistake that in our program people say you know try to stay out of a relationship for a year because typically we don't even know who we are and if we keep living without knowing who we are, then we're going to keep seeking that relationship to give us the validity of something outside of ourselves. And, you know, that, that type of behavior, seeking something outside yourself, another human being, I've seen it kill people. And in the book, it says selfish self-centeredness, we must be rid of it or it kills us. And that's it. It's the wounding inside that you can't be with yourself because you won't look at those issues we've been talking about. And you keep seeking that relief through another human being, but it's only relief and it never solved the problem. So 
staying sober free of people or uh, relationships for a year, it's, it's almost critical to long-term sobriety in my opinion. So, so thanks for sharing that. Uh, yeah. My pleasure. Um, so yeah. here you are, uh, you know, two and a bit years clean and sober. You're carrying the message. You're helping men and women. You're, you're a pillar in the recovery community. You know, Tommy and I can reach out to you at any time and I'm sure you'd give sure us can. Your, your advice or your help in any way and, and vice versa as it has happened that way. Um, so as you move forward from your recovery, like today, um, what, what's in store for you down the road as you move on from here? Oh, well, oh, that's a great question, you know, and this all comes back down to me not running the show and me not being in control because I really do not know, uh, Phil, I'm uh, relying on my higher power to to reveal to me, you know, um, I'm in a situation right now where, like I mentioned, the, 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 the Soberoso podcast has been an incredible uh, recovery project for me that's not only helping me heal my own past but helping other people out there um it's been a real labor of love and it's like literally a full-time job <laughs> an unpaid job <laughs> so um you know i feel like i'm 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 doing what i'm supposed to be doing in this project um but yeah there's a, a little bit of that financing thing that i'm not sure about how it's going to come down the road and uh, kind of living on credit right now and and uh just praying that my higher power will take away my difficulties and, you know, show, show me the way. So I don't, I can't really have any plans because plans change, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Billy and I were just talking about, you know, the, the, like I got to a spot where it was just like, I, I needed to change my career. So I, I went to school for, for life coaching and, and, uh, and I've been doing that and, and then, you know, starting the, the new, the new business and everything, but it, it's hard for the mind to accept and comprehend the plan of not really having a plan. I mean, you, 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 you do what's in front of you and you try and just kind of let the outcome go. And lately, like other stuff that I, I didn't really plan on doing has been falling in my lap. But I've always had this kind of blind faith for the past, I don't know, 10 months of, you know, not really knowing, kind of knowing it changes a little bit here and there. And, you know, I always talk about the spiritual way of life is very nonlinear. Like, you know, you think you're going in one direction and you get rebounded into another and you just kind of roll with it. And it's, it's really a, a, um, a lot less stressful in that way. Um, I think you're open to a lot more opportunity um, and, you know, just the experience of, of actually, you know, having that faith, that faith of, of not needing to know, not having to have such a tight grip on the plan. And I'm not saying we don't have a plan because we do make a plan. And uh, what I'm saying is that we just don't know what, what the, the, the journey looks like. Like we have a bit of a destination, but the journey is a bit of an unknown and for the for the mind that is a complete mind fuck because you know i've been programmed to need to know everything or else you know things aren't going to work out right but, so this experience of, of um just trusting in god and and putting one foot in front of the, the other and just working in service um you know sponsorship is huge um you know the the, the energy that i put into my family is huge and and all of these things that, you know, we kind of try and put where I used to put by my wayside, where it was always work first, figure out how I'm getting money and all these things first. And then my family came second, but I've, I've kind of switched it into the, you know, family for or recovery first family. And then, um, you know, just relying on God to, to kind of carve my path, you know, and not having to have it by Friday, you know, right. understanding that try and experience the journey and enjoy the journey and uh, be open to new ideas and, and, and new way of life. And, and fuck, it's been good. Like true freedom, 
true freedom of the human spirit, not saying that it's like that every day, because I'll, I'll convince myself that I need to be doing certain things. And, you know, but I've really learned to just, you know, with every decision I meet, I, I make, you know, go to prayer and talk to other people and, and don't have to run the universe anymore. And, you know, I don't have that weight, right? So I, I, it doesn't make sense at first, especially first in recovery, when people used to talk about, you know, letting it go and giving it to God. And it was like, yeah, 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 that's fine for you, but I got to make things happen. Um, today is not the case. And I understand um, a little bit about having the blind faith to um, really experience abundance and, you know, um, success. And, you know, I have a very different opinion on what success looks like today. You know, successful in my spiritual practice, successful in my, in my family, successful with, um, you know, being of service and also being successful in work, you know? So there's a lot, it's a, it's a big, it's a much broader view of life than, you know, just success means lots of money because I used to be like that. And, uh, you know, it was like a goal I could never really get to, you know, because I was just trying so fucking hard with such a tight grip and, you know, um, yeah, it's a, it's a much more freeing experience this way, this way of life for sure, you know? What about you, Billy? I like that you uh, corrected yourself and you put recovery yeah. first <laughs> before the work and before the family even, right? And, and families that people that are non-alcoholic don't really understand that because if we don't put this recovery in our creator first, we don't have any number twos. And that, that's right. the reality of this disease. And like you talked about, Tommy, learning how to relinquish this and, and turn it over after a while, after practice, it actually starts turning out better than we could have planned anyway. And, and instead of trying to live up to this designed plan that I want, when things don't go my way, I get resentful or I get discouraged. It's kind of like an adventure. You know, every day you just wake up, you kind of have what you think it's going to be. On awakening, we think about these 24 hours ahead. This is hopefully how it's going to go. But to be able to, to swivel and pivot and go with the flow the resentments don't come. Life doesn't treat me shitty because it's not happening to me anymore. It's happening for me. And life becomes more of like an adventure and you're just kind of going into the unknown. And, and some of the best memories of my life were like unexpected, unknown things that just kind of came along and, and living that way of life is, <clears throat> it's pretty cool, man, but it takes practice, right? Like, oh, yeah. like you said, practice. So, so, uh, yeah. I just want wait. I just want to jump in there and say, like, uh, on the topic of you know just going with the flow. We have the you know learning to have the flexibility, you know, to to have a, a kind of a penciled in plan, but the flexibility to, to change with it. And um, that's exactly how recording with you two went today. <laughs> yeah. I was like, is Bill going to remember that we have a recording? Well, I'm not going to chase him. I'll just wait and see if he remembers. <laughs> and it's like I've got like you know. I'm on the computer doing something on the side here. And if he calls me, I'll do it. But I'm not going to be like, you know, pulling my hair out because Bill didn't fucking call me. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's like a, having a, a lateral plan, you know, so I'm not going to be totally derailed if, you know, this appointment didn't go through. And, and in my active addiction and alcoholism, you know, I had to, you know, I, I was a planner, you know, and if things didn't go ABC, you know, I just shit hit the fan you know I was anxious and I needed a drink because the plan fell apart and it was supposed to happen like this mm -hmm. oh so, yeah. yeah well that's awesome well I um I'm very um impressed by all the work that you're putting into recovery and really bringing the awareness especially online like um I just think it's really amazing what you're doing and and uh I think it's, I can see the, the patience and persistence and um, a lot of living in the unknown. Um, you, you know, you mentioned you're living off credit. So that can be for most people kind of scary at times. And, um, but you just keep trudging the road, right? You know, door right. walking with purpose today. And I, you know, we can all sense that we can see that your podcast is amazing. Um, so yeah, I mean, why don't, why don't you lay out for the audience where they can find you, uh, what you're up to, anything that you want them to know? I mean, uh, 
soberosa.com is so so freaking cool what you got going on but why don't you tell them a little bit more about that sure so i uh founded the company sober oso uh let me just tell you a little background on that so you all will know the word sober but oso is the spanish word for bear so when you put the two words together sober oso you have a non-drinking non-using bear and you can find me you can find the website facebook instagram patreon all under sober oso that's all you got to click into the search bar you can find uh, the podcast also sober oso on Spotify, Breaker, Anchor FM, Google Play, Apple Play, basically anywhere you want to look for us, just type in Soberoso and you should find us anywhere. But everything will be on the website, uh, www.soberoso.com. Uh, I also design recovery clothing, shirts, hats, hoodies for men and women that uh, show a positive message about recovery. So Join us and wear and share your passion for recovery with Soberoso. Nice. Right on, Dora. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Uh, <clears throat> before we shut her down, I'm just going to let people know where you can find me and, and Tommy will do the same. So um, where you can find me is uh, at billward.life on any of these social media platforms. Um, you can find me on my website at billward.life um, and, and I'm just doing my thing. I'm going to be focusing a lot on First Nations here in the next little while. I'm gonna be doing an interview series with uh, First Nations influencers. Tommy and I will continue doing the UDR cast. We will be building a uh, Instagram channel for UDR, maybe Facebook. We don't know, but we're gonna keep UDR going. And uh, yeah, that's that's what I'm up to, man. Yeah, and so you can find me at uh, foresightsgroup.ca, uh, sorry, um, and then uh, foresightsgroup.coach. Um, basically, my focus is um, really helping um, basically parents of young adult adults that are struggling with addiction, don't know what to do, don't know where to go. Um, you know, I. Um, certified in neuro-linguistics programming um, just to develop some techniques to get you through hard times and see a new perspective and and also um, helping with the young adults um, get into the recovery process. Um, I know it can be a kind of a daunting process. It was me, you know, when I was 19 to 25 trying to figure out how to get sober. So I, I've done a lot of um, do's and don'ts and kind of know what works for me and a lot of other people. So um, yeah, just getting out to help the parents and the young adults is kind of my main focus. And um, I've taken some courses through HeartMath Institute to help with anxiety, some breathing practices and stuff, just to help with the in the moment um, stresses and the anxieties. So uh, yeah, that's my focus today. And again, Dora, awesome to have you. Good to see you. Uh, we miss you. And uh, yeah, keep doing what you're doing.